Welcome, everybody, to the frozen tundra of Arkansas, where it's minus 2 degrees Fahrenheit, a full 34 degrees below freezing. Wow, what uh, uh, global warming is such a wonderful thing, isn't it, Michael? <laughs> I, I think they call it a climate change now, Eli. Don't oh, you yeah, think? right. Well, either way, I don't like it. <laughs> it uh, I wish we would go back to global warming. It, it sounds better, <laughs> right? I'd rather be warm than cold and frozen. So uh, we had the power go out last night, and my kerosene heater wouldn't start. So right now I'm suffering through a cold wave with just one little dinky heater. That, uh, it's a, what do you call it, a oscillating, oscillating heater. And that's keeping me alive at the moment, for keeping my toes from getting froze. So anyway, uh, I think I'm going to make it, though. Uh, the, the temperature is going to reach a, a balmy zero degrees <laughs> Fahrenheit very soon. So as long as my toes don't freeze, I'll be okay. In any case, uh, let's get back to uh, what we were talking about, the difference between the Masoretic Text and the Septuagint. And uh, I put the link in the chat room, and let me double-check to make sure I did put that link in the chat room. And uh, we're going to start at the uh, area where it says the Septuagint footnote. And I'll turn it over to you, Michael, to, to begin reading there. Yes. Now, yes. So, um, this is a brilliant text, a footnote. What many people do not realize is that, as long as we can determine there have been variants of the scriptural texts as they have come down to us, our readers will note that we have pointed out that the text of the Old Testament that the Protestants and Roman Catholics use today are different from the Jewish texts that the Orthodox Church has used since the times of our Savior. Why? Some history may be useful here. By royal decree, the Septuagint text was prepared in the 3rd century before Christ in Alexandria, Egypt, by the best, uh, I would say, Judaite scholars of the day. Yes, exactly, Judaite, not Jewish. Uh, at, yeah. at the time, Alexandria was the greatest center of learning in the known world, and its lit library was famous for its completeness and the valuable manuscripts it contained. The Septuagint tr translation was an occasion of great ce celebration and a special day was set aside to commemorate this event in the Judaite community, mm -hmm. which for the most part no longer spoke Hebrew, especially in the dysphorium. Uh, bracket in Palestine, the Judah spoke only Aramaic. I don't know if that's. I guess should be Judah, not Jews. Anyway, now no, I'm it's, it's uh, changing yeah, it's uh, Jews to Judahite. Right. Well, but it's true that yeah. both. Now the, with this. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, Judahite is correct. No, sorry. Here. Continue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but at this point in time, the Edomites probably spoke mainly Aramaic as well. You know, so it wouldn't be incorrect to say Judeans, the Judeans spoke. But uh, so for people who are new to this channel, there's three categories here we have to be aware of. Number one is the tribe of Judah, and the Judahites are the direct descendants of the patriarch Judah, and therefore are Israelites, okay? Then, then we have Jews who are primarily Edomites, you know, 
and almost 100% Edomites who were pretending to be Judah in the days 100 years before Christ. And then we have Judeans. The Judeans are the grab bag, the mixed bag of Judahites and Edomites living in Palestine for the 100 years B.C., 100 years A.D., until Masada pretty much wrecked that whole society. So the Judeans, uh, that's just a territorial term, okay? Whoever is living in Palestine at the time was a Judean, okay? And the uh, the inscription that Herod, or not Herod, uh, Pontius Pilate put on the cross after the crucifixion, so it was the uh, king of the Jews. Well, yeah, that meant Judeans, Judeos. And Yahshua did not come to redeem Judea. He came to redeem Israel, all of Israel. And so, uh, but, but that was put put up there in mocking terms. I believe it was uh, Luke that stressed that this, uh, this inscription was actually mocking Jesus, so it can't be considered historically accurate. But the fact is, he did not come to redeem. He was not the kinsman redeemer of the Judeans, that mixed bag of people or the Jews, but only for Israel. And of course, Judah was the main representative there. Okay, so we need to keep the racial and terminologies distinct and understand who exactly it is we're talking about. That's why we're replacing the word Jew in this article with Judah for the most part. Okay, back to you, Michael. Yes, thank you. Uh, okay. Now, with the Septuagint translation, the, I don't know, rabbis is the correct word here. I think it's more our Judahite uh, right. teachers. Uh, right, the Israelites had no, uh, had no rabbis. In fact, Yeshua no. says we should reject that term. Okay, so they were Judahite uh, priests or scholars. Yes. Yeah, okay. we call them scholars instead. The scholars, right, yes. yeah, the Judahite scholars could instruct their people again easing a language most of them spoke, bracket Greek and bracket. But in addition, they could make their faith more readily accessible to the pagan world around them. Consequently, uh, the Septuagint was held in great esteem, and in the time of our Savior, it was in wide use in the Judai community, That's bracket, correct. as the many quotations from it is it in the New Testament testify and bracket. Right. Yes. Okay. And so we have uh, all kinds of testimony. The first three parts we've done on in this series of both Israelites in in Palestine uh, after the uh, breakup of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Christian Judahites emerging. But they, the only source they had, the Israelites had, was the Septuagint. And that's what they quoted from. The Masoretic text had not yet been written. It didn't come out to a, about 1000 AD. And that was because the Pharisees were the only ones that had access to the old Hebrew scriptures. And they began perverting those scriptures. And the product is called the Masoretic text. Okay? So. There's no, absolutely no doubt the Septuagint is infinitely preferable to the Masoretic text because the uh, Masoretic text is tampered with by the Jewish rabbis. Okay, back to you. Yes, thank you. What is also noteworthy is that Pilo, one of the greatest Judaic scholars of antiquity, was also one of the foremost apologists uh, for the Judaic religion among the pagans. Though, okay. 
the many tracts he wrote, bracket, all of them based on the Septuagint text, and on bracket. He led many thousands of pagans to convert to the Judahite faith. That's right. Yet, Pilo, a contemporary of our Savior, could not speak Hebrew. He knew only Greek. There you go. So how's, they didn't have the uh, Hebrew scriptures in their possession anyhow. And we have the Septuagint translation of uh, 250 B.C., which is superior to the Masoretic text anyway. It's not superior to the Hebrew text, but we don't have the Hebrew text. The only thing that comes close to the Hebrew text is the Dead Sea Scrolls, of which only the book of Isaiah we have in its entirety in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But that conforms more to the Septuagint as we would expect. All right, back to you. Yeah. With the appearance of Christianity, however, things began to change. The many thousands of pagans who formerly had converted to, to Jude... Mosaism. To Mosaism. Mosaism. Yes. Now began turning to the Christian faith, but that is basically the same thing. So. Yes, it's the same. Same religion. Yeah. Uh, Minus the sacrifices. That's the only change. Just the sacrificial rituals were eliminated because our Messiah had sacrificed himself. No more need to sacrifice lambs or goats or anything like that anymore. Okay. And doing that is a bit blaspheming to Yeshua Messiah because then you don't believe that he was the final sacrifice. That's right. That's right. And there are sects that still do that. And, of course, you know the Jews want to start up ritual sacrifice anyway. That's what the that's why they're ta- trying to take over the control of the temple in Jerusalem just for that purpose and rebuild the, right, rebuild the third temple, right, so they can practice animal sacrifice again. It just shows that Judaism is antichrist. Back to you. Yeah. Did you hear this? This American pastor was saying that he, he, he yelled for that the dome of the rock should be be, be destructed, should be oh. completely destroyed. Yeah, I can send you. There was an interview with Stephen Anderson. Then you have this this uh, Zionist pastor. He and this other I don't remember any name on it now. This fat one, this pretty big and chubby guy. Oh. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hey, you, you know. Yeah, Hagee. He, yeah, he. But there was another one said, oh, he said that he prays that the doom of the rock should be uh, destroyed so you can build the third temple. Right, yeah. The guy doesn't know scripture, but of course, he's a shill for the Jews. I'm sure they're paying him good money to say things like that. Yeah, and yeah, full of this this uh, Israeli uh, flag within. <laughs> yeah, he's full of it. Yeah, and how can you have that flag inside of a, of a, bil- uh, a building yeah, of God? Christian, that's right. Yeah, the, the sign of the Antichrist. The six-pointed yeah. hexagram is what it is, folks. It's a hexagram. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Uh-huh. It's not the Star of David. No, absolutely not. All right. <laughs> Um, in addition, thousands of Judites also converted to Christianity. Though the work of the holy apostles, the Evangelion, the quote, good news, and a quote, of our Savior and his triumph over man. Mankind's lost enemy, death, began spreading like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean world okay. and beyond. Yeah, well, but those were, of course, Israelites of the dispersion. You know? Now, there may have been a few non-Israelites who you know, saw what was going on and wanted to convert to Christianity, but we can't accept them. Uh, Christianity, just as the Old Testament religion, is exclusive to the 12 tribes of Israel and no other people. Okay, so but even here, even though the Orthodox Church, which includes the Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, all those Orthodox churches 
they have succumbed to universalism as well. I know this from firsthand experience because I visited some of these Orthodox churches in Chicago and in northern Indiana. All right. So they do not uh, practice or preach racial segregation as we do. All right. Back to you. Um. Though, now let's see what there is enough of. Okay, there. Furthermore, the apostles were armed with proofs, the Old Testament prophecies that foretold of our Savior's coming. Thanks to the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, those prophecies were in a language almost everyone could understand. Very good. Yeah. And our people couldn't understand Hebrew any longer as we don't understand it today. Actually, the Jews don't understand it either. They just pretend to. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, they okay. use, they, I guess yeah. they use it for their own end. They use it to pervert it, like this Netanyahu, how he perverted and calling the Palestinian everybody else Amalek, when he himself right. is Amalek. He is Amalek, that's right. Yes. So he is, uh, they are full of it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All Jews are yeah. full of it, no doubt. All right. So, in the meantime, the whole Jewish world was shaken with a terrible catastrophe. No, not Jewish, Judite world, sorry. Um, uh, The fall and complete destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Roman legions. These events prophesied by our Savior caused utter uh, consternation in the Judite community, because not only had a political center of the county vanished amidst inhuman atrocities and barbarity, but the temple itself was gone. Literally, no stone was left upon a stone. That's right. The very center and heart of Judite faith had been ruthlessly cut out by the Romans, and even the Judite priesthood was exterminated. That's right. Well, not necessarily exterminated. Uh, the uh, the Judahites, uh, when Titus uh, wrecked the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, there was a break in the action, and the Judahites who had accepted the uh, the sacrifice at Calvary by Yahshua Messiah, they escaped. There's like a one-year hiatus in the attack by the Romans of the city of Jerusalem, and that's when the Judahite Christians made their escape, leaving only the zealots who did not accept Yahshua as Messiah, and, of course, the Edomites, okay? So, in, in other words, uh, the, the heathen and the heathen hangarons, which were, would be of the house of Judah, who never accepted uh, their kinsman redeemer, okay? There are a lot of people who still don't accept him. All right, back to you. Oh, it is. Yes. Um the few shreds left of the city's population were banished, and the Judite began a long exile. There you go. Yeah. In an attempt to restore some order out of this total devastation, around AD 90 or 100, a prestigious school of um, scholars in the city of uh, Jam, uh, Jamnia. Now, here, here, Jews, rabbis, is correct, because now we're talking about Edomite Jews. Ah, okay. Babylonian Jews is what we're talking about here now. Okay. Ah, okay. Then, yeah, then we're correcting it. Yeah, Jamnia is one of their yeshivas. That's the uh, school of Talmud. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Then it's rabbis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, and it's both. I think it's two different cities, and they had yeshivas in both of those cities, Jamnia and Jabna. Okay, unless it's unless it's the same city, different pronunciation. Okay, back to you. 
Thank you. So we can yeah. correct it. Around 80, 90 or 100, prestigious school of rabbis in the city of yes. Jamnia bracket or Jabne and the bracket, which is some 13 miles south of Jaffa, constituted a new Sanhedrin and discussed and determined the canon of the Old Testament. Okay, this was an exclusively Edomite and Babylonian priesthood now. There's no more, uh, no more, the Levites are gone, the Sadducees are gone, the only ones left are the Pharisees, and these rabbis are Pharisaic rabbis, okay, who then proceeded to scribble, uh, scribble down what's now called the Masoretic Text. And it, it took them at least 800 years more to do that, because as we have reported in earlier episodes of this series, that uh, the rabbis hated the Septuagint and therefore composed the, the Masoretic text in opposition to the Septuagint. So here we have a clear demarcation between Edomite rabbis and Judahite and Israelite uh, you know, Christians. Okay, that's the difference at this point in time. Back to you. Yes, and I guess this is this time, the start of the birth of their Masoretic text. That's right, exactly. Exactly. Okay. In view of the fact that the Septuagint was being used too extensively, bracket, and effectively, and bracket, by the quote, new faith, and quote, bracket, Christianity, and bracket, in winning many thousands of converts from paganism and from the, uh, I don't know, Jewish Judaite people themselves. No Jew will ever convert to Christianity. <laughs> no. Okay. So you have to keep the ethnic distinctions in mind and also the religious distinctions. Where now at this point in time, Judaism is now in full bloom. It began in Palestine under the Pharisees and to some extent under the Sadducees. But there was never any such thing as Judaism in the Old Testament. You will not find that word in the Old Testament. And it was only Mosaic religion which was being corrupted by the rabbis in Palestine from 100 B.C. to 180. Over to you. And what we call Judaism today is the teachings of the elders, the teaching of men that Yeshua right. condemned. Amen. The, the pre-Talmudic teachings of the Pharisees, yes. Yeah. Um, it was resolved by the rabbinical school to condemn the Septuagint text and forbid its use among the, I don't know, it probably could be Jews here. Uh, well, yeah, the Jews would forbid the use of the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah so that has to be the Jews. Yes, exactly. Okay, see, so you're getting it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the difference between a Jew and a Judahite must always be maintained because they're two antagonistic groups of people, two different races, as a matter of fact. Okay. Yeah, it gets a bit. Uh, the difference is known, known, but but still, when it's in the article, when he have written it in yeah, one, yeah. it gets very confusing. Yeah, well, like I said, the Orthodox faith is pretty much Judeo-Christian, even though you know they they use the Septuagint. They're pretty much Judeos, just as the you know the Catholics and the Protestants are today. Okay, we're the only ones really in identity. We're the only ones who are aware of this true distinction, which is both racial and religious. Okay, please continue. The day, uh, which had been formally been set aside as a day of celebration, uh, commemoration, the translation of the Septuagint was now declared a day of mourning. Ah, Highly by the Jews, by the Jews, <laughs> yes. Okay. 
pious, valuable um, tracts in defense of the Judite faith were renounced as well, since they were based on the Septuagint translation. Yeah, that okay, must be so, Jews that did right. renounce it. So I, I had done a study about the history of Philo in Alexandria, and I concluded that he was a Judite because he was upholding the Mosaic law, which the Jews do not. That's another thing Judeo-Christians and even Orthodox Christians don't understand is they, they don't practice the Mosaic law. They never did. They only pretend to. And if you don't understand that Judaism is nothing but pretense, then you don't understand anything, right? You don't understand anything if you don't understand that Judaism is pretense. Okay. Yeah, and look at who are the best uh, best actors, Jews, so yeah. Judith is a <laughs> right? big act. It's a big act. Yes. They are actors. They are perfect in actors. And they're, they're good at it, to be actors. And that's also what Judith is. It's just a pretense. It's just an act. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah, the Jews are tunnel rats. Because <laughs> uh, we did a show on Friday about the fact that that uh, synagogue in New York City the uh, the rabbis were digging tunnels underneath the uh, property, underneath the synagogue, to connect up to the ladies' washroom, <laughs> so they could probably crawl around and peek into the ladies' washroom and stuff like that, right? And they were probably sacrificing babies down there because they pulled out bloody mattresses. Uh, the mainstream media is not reporting this at all. At I all. haven't I haven't read yet this video, but I read something called that there is some kind of adrenochrome market found in New York City, Jewish tunnels. So could that also be, have to do something That's with it? That's probably the same story, but uh, you know, it's hard to get any facts because the Jews want to cover that story up like the plague, right? <laughs> then it is. Yeah. But people, uh, independent people, some guy went into the tunnels with his cell phone and videotaped it. Okay, so that that videotape is uh, you know circulating. the The mainstream Jews media will never report this. Okay, I, I doubt that it'll ever appear on you know ABC, NBC, or even what, whatever Sweden, because <laughs> oh. the mainstream Swedish television is run by Jews also. Oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, SVT um, uh, TV Four is run by Jewish bonnier, so yeah, it's Jewish infested here too. So they will right. they will give it the silent treatment. That is That's one of that is bonnier's uh, modus of the operandi, yeah, the silent right. treatment. Yeah, you shall not embarrass a rabbi. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's the golden rule of the Jews. You shall not embarrass a <laughs> rabbi. Okay. And that would embarrass them a lot. That would condemn oh, them to jail and hang them. Right. Well, I have a feeling that more information of this type is going to get out. It's going to become so prevalent because now the people are awake to what the Jews really are, namely the children of the devil and the synagogue of Satan. More and more videos like they're taken by private individuals are going to get out. Okay. Yeah. They will and get out. Something I notice now, this is something has happened pretty recently in Sweden. Now the war the war drums is on here. Now oh it could be war within half a yeah. year year now. So now they're trumping for war here too. So that's I guess is also one reason because now people are waking up to the Jews and their economy right. is collapsing. So now they need to find a diversion. So people don't realize it. Right. Yeah, well, that's a song uh, written by Nina, I guess it was in the mid eighties. Called 99 Luftballon. Have you ever heard that song? 
No, I don't recognize it. Okay. Yeah, it was a big hit in Germany. In fact, it was a big hit in America, too. It was so big that they had to do an American, an English uh, translation of it. And it's called 99 Red Balloons. Okay. And so I'll play it at Voice of Christian Israel today because it's an anti-war song. And it's basically mocking people who want to create wars. Now, whether Nina was Jew savvy or not, but she was a fine German lady who sang that song. So I'll play it at Voice of Christian Israel this afternoon. And that's and we we actually need to because uh, it was in 2014. Uh, I went to South Africa and we had an event called uh, Red October in which we released thousands of red balloons to popularize the plight of white South Africans who were being murdered, of course, by the international Jewish conspiracy and by black Africans who murdering white farmers, right? And I need, we need to revive that, uh, that practice and release thousands of red balloons to, and uh, attach notes simply saying, the Jewish people are not Israelites, it's a fraud. If you want more information, watch Eurofolk Radio, something like that. Okay. That could that could be our new form of of transmitting our, our yeah, transmit our our message if the internet goes down, so we have to find there new you ways. Go. Right? It's, it's better than smoke signals. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. Okay, yeah. So I think that the Jews are in big trouble because of, of social media and private cell phones. There's no way they can stop that. And if somebody can post that on the Internet and become, uh, what you, what's the term, viral, it become a viral. In fact, I was trying to post this story all week long. And every time I would put the, a link up to the story, it would be taken down within minutes, within a half an hour at the most. And so finally, there's so many posts now that they can't deny it. Now what they have to do is pretend that there's nothing bad happening. Okay. But one commentator said, well, if you have to dig secret tunnels, it can't be good. <laughs> right? Nothing good could be happening down there if those tunnels had to be built in secret. Nothing, nothing, no. nothing good will be done in darkness. Everything right. that is of, of light will be done in light. So that's also yeah. how I think when I hear much about, uh, we can now slip into this, that topic of white hats. If they does it in secret, yes. can it be good if it's done in secret? Yeah. No. Yeah, and, and so why did those no. rabbis hire a cement truck to fill in the tunnels before anybody could get in there? But unfortunately for them, people already got in there. And we're looking around and saw the bloody mattresses and saw the, uh, well, you mentioned adrenochrome. They found traces of adrenochrome, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, this word has to get out and it is going to get out. It's getting to the point where the Jews cannot hide their secrets any longer. Okay. So our people are waking up very, very slowly, but they will wake up. All right. Back to you. Yeah. So then, why then back to what? I, then war is inevitable because they need yes. to do something to to get the narrative back now because now they are losing it. That's right. They're losing the info wars. Right. They are. They yes. are. Yeah. No thanks to Alex Jones. <laughs> no, he's a stooge. You saw that yeah, in the right. interview he's with Brother total, Nathaniel. Come on, he's, he's a stooge. He's a stooge, right? I trust Brother oh. Nathaniel more than I trust him, right? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Nathaniel, he says he says, I'm a Jew, and I say this and this. And he says more than most white people would ever dare to say. So he has more gut than a, some, a sort of a saying, but some of the white people have no gut. 
they they shake they shake and their eyes get uh, strange when you mention the word Jew because probably get money from them. Yes. Same as Alex Jung. Why is he afraid? Because he has built his empire around Jewish money. Right. When well, all those tunnels in uh, in Gaza, those were built by Jews. The, the the Hamas people, they're simple folk. They don't have the ability to they don't have the equipment to dig miles and miles of tunnels. That's the Israelis doing that, and now they're claiming the Hamas built them to attack Jews. And, you know, the story has been revealed, and Netanyahu even admitted it. Those 400 or 500 Israelis that were gunned down were gunned down by the IDF, not by Hamas people, not by Palestinians, because they were were trying to get, they were trying to kill a couple of Hamas operatives, and the uh, Israeli state has a standing rule. If any civilians get in the way of one of our targets, kill them all. Yeah, okay? they're crazy. Yeah. They have what a I name think... for that policy, too. I can't, uh, I can't remember what it is, but they have a name for that policy. If a Jew gets in the way of a target, kill, him, kill the Jew, too. Oh, my. That's how evil these people are. They're okay? so evil. Yeah. And that's why I thought when he said it's with a tunnel, they're accusing Hamas of it. But then I think about this Jewish communist dictum, quote, accuse the enemy of the crimes yeah, you are right. guilty of. All right. That's correct. That's how they yeah. do it. And our yeah. people keep falling for it. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Eric has a, 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 a woman in a hajib, you know, or what do you say, that, that black robe they wear. But uh, even a face mask, but the face mask has a huge nose <laughs> behind it, right? Okay, yeah, that's Hamas, folks. A Jew yeah, pretending they, to be Hamas. Oh, of course, they created yeah. themselves. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, please continue. We're on the right track, folks. We're on the yeah. right track. All right. So, the Old Testament text used today by non-Orthodox Christians is the Masoretic text, which was prepared by Jewish scholars in the centuries of the Christ. And there it is, Jewish scholars. So that's no, correct. no, 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 no. When you have the word scholar after Jewish, change the word scholar to liar. Ah, okay. We can call okay, it Jewish, Jewish, Jewish rabbi. Right, Jewish rabbis. Go. Yeah, there you go. Not scholar. There's no such thing as a Jewish scholar. There are, well, my definition of the rabbinate is that they're the old, the world's <laughs> oldest professional liars club. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay. For sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that occurred to me when I was driving around the city of Chicago, and there's a bar called the Liars Club. Oh, I think is that a Jewish nightclub? <laughs> must be. Yeah. Right. And that's on Fullerton Avenue, folks. The Liars Club. All right, but yeah, even in you probably hear more lies told in in clubs, in bars, right, in whiskey bars than anywhere else, except the uh, yeshivas of Judaism. Okay, back to you. Or do you hear more truth when people are drinking alcohol? Oh, there, there to, you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> so maybe you hear more truth there than you do on the media because the media never tells any truth. That's why the Jews don't drink alcohol, because it loosens their lips, right? And then they say, like Rothenthal said, so then they say that they worship Satan and they're proud of it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Please continue. Yes. 
Uh, when they picked among the many variant texts to prepare their own version of the Old Testament, their own version, yeah. That's right. The, these Jewish rabbis, as might be readily understood, had an already decided bias against any scriptural var- variant that might l- lend itself to a Christian interpretation. Here, here, this this is Edomite Jews. Yes, right. Absolutely. Let me read that sentence over because it is the absolute truth without apologies that when they, that is the Masoretes, the Jewish rabbis, when they picked among the variant uh, texts to prepare their own version of the Old Testament, that's the Masoretic text, folks, it's a Jewish version, these Jewish rabbis, as might be readily understood, had an already decided bias against any scriptural variant that might lend itself to a Christian interpretation. Now you understand why the KJV is so awful, because it's based on the Masoretic text. All right, It takes the Jewish bias and converts it into English. Back to you. And in your case, Swedish, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same here. They have used the Masoretic text in our the the Bibles we have today. Yes. So anybody who same. says the, the KJV is inerrant simply has no idea. He's either ignorant or insincere if he claims that KJV is inerrant. Okay, let's continue. As the centuries passed, those variant texts uh, not used by the rabbis fell by the wayside or were usually destroyed. And thus, about a millennium after Christ, these scholars finally arrived at what is known as the Masoretic text. Right. They, st- they finished their perversion of the Old Testament. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, redacting here, the Old Testament, and then but then they kept on working on the Talmud, which is basically, you know, another text they use the the traditions of the elders. So they they, they stopped working on the Masoretic text and they kept working on the Talmud. Yeah, okay. So here is a picture of the Qumran cave where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So now we right. get maybe into the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, with with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the middle of the 20th century, however, the numerous ancient variants in the Hebrew sacred texts came to light again. And in many cases, the Septuagint text proved to reflect the original Hebrew text better than the text that has come down to us in the later Masoretic version. Okay, so this has nothing to do with Orthodox Christianity. This is simply a comparison of, and we did, we compared many verses last week between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text to show how many deletions the Masoretic text contains, okay? But we found that the Dead Sea Scrolls agreed with the Septuagint way more often than it did with the Masoretic text. It's it's double-checking. Okay, and showing that the Masoretic text has been perverted. All right, back to you. Also, many ancient Hebrew words cannot be understood or even pronounced any longer. They can be translated and understood only with the help of the Septuagint. Very good. Okay. Yeah, and take note is a <laughs> icon there. Yeah. Okay, so thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint text is now held in far greater esteem among non-Orthodox scholars than it was even in few years ago. 
The Septuagint text may have its own problems, but it represents an ancient and authentic Hebrew tradition. Correct. For centuries, it was beloved and celebrated by the Judite people. Judite, yeah, not Jews. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And that uh, is one of the reasons why uh, it was and still is sponsored and revered by the Christian Church. Amen. Okay, so uh, we say, quote, by royal decree, and quote, because initially the Judites were oppressed to having their sacred text racket defiled, and quote, by having them translated into a Gentile language. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know if that that was uh, how they used it. We're not Gentiles. uh, No. German and English are not Gentile. They're they're derived from Hebrew. Yeah, that's wrong. Saying Gentile language. Yeah. Um, So it required a decree by Platonomy II, Philadelphus, Philadelphus, to have this work accomplished. According to ancient sources, the text used for the work of the translation was supplied by the high priest in Jerusalem. Not a rabbi. He was a priest of the hereditary priesthood of uh, either Levi or Zadok, one or the other. And there there were other uh, supporting priesthoods as well. But a, a, a hereditary priest of Judah. Only or Levi, only possibilities. Okay, back to you. Yeah, there's a pictures on then this I guess success, successor from this general from Alexander the Great, yeah. King Ptolemy the Second, Philadelphus. So Egypt. you can see he doesn't look like a Jew. He <laughs> no. looks like an Adamite, right? Because <laughs> he is, right? And so are yeah, we. he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have been in Alexander's Great Army, you are not a Jew. Right. Yeah. Okay, let me pick a, pick up the paragraph number three here. Why Orthodox Christians prefer the Septuagint? Continued from part one. There was a, law, a long inter, uh, intermediary text that we, we didn't talk about because uh, it's a, a more on Isaiah 53, which we covered uh, previously very extensively. There was no need to repeat that. So continuing here, the case of the missing prophet, We have written in a previous article, The Neutralization of the Netherworld, that the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament represents an ancient and authentic Hebrew tradition. Due to the fact that there were variances in the Hebrew texts, the textual tradition that the Septuagint translation presents often differs widely from the Masoretic Hebrew of today. But no, no, the, uh, the problem is that the under Herod, the Jews, the Pharisees, ha- were the only ones that had access to the ancient Hebrew scriptures, thanks to Herod. And uh, Herod destroyed a lot of it, too. Okay, so And then uh, on top of that, our people began speaking Aramaic and Greek, so they wouldn't have understood the ancient Hebrew text anyway. Okay, But at least we would have had access to it. And scholars, well, for, for example, Paul knew, who knew Hebrew. Okay. And so did Yahshua. And so did several of the other apostles that understood Hebrew. In fact, a lot of the original Gospels were written in Hebrew. Okay. But the Jews had control of it, so they couldn't access it. All right. So then he continues. But there are also some surprises. In very ancient times, it seems some anonymous rabbis felt that they needed to take some liberties with the sacred text, mostly, it appears, out of embarrassment 
For example, the book of Judges, we are told that the children of Dan fell into idolatry, Judges 18, 30 to 31. This is what the Septuagint says about that, quote, And the children of Dan set up the graven images for themselves, and Jonathan, son of Gershon, son of Manassas, he and his son were priests of the tribe of Dan till the time of the carrying away of the nation, literally the land, and they set up for themselves graven images which Michalis, or Micah, made all the days that the house of God was in Shiloh. Okay? So it's it's talking about the, uh, you know, the, uh, what's the, the falling away of the tribe of Dan into into paganism? This essentially, the text continues, is what the Masoretic text says. Also, the only problem here is that Gershom was not the son of Manassas; he was the son of the prophet Moses. <laughs> How embarrassing! The grandson of Israel's most prominent prophet fell into idolatry. Wow, that's bad, isn't it? Mm-hmm. This is what the author Charles D. Proven. Christian News, May 7, 2007, writes, quote, The rabbis themselves wrote that they deliberately changed some passages of the Old Testament. Among the most definite changes is Judges 18.30, where the rabbis admit they changed the text from Moses to Manasseh in order to protect Moses. Okay? This is a type of tampering that the rabbis have done to the old Hebrew. Continuing, the teachers of Israel felt this fall on the part of the prophet's grandson would cast reproach on the reputation of the great Moses. Well, no, he's not the one who tampered with the text. It was his grandson. So they changed the name. The translators of the Septuagint inherited this variant in the text they were given, and so they faithfully rendered this ancient rabbinical redaction into Greek. All right, so here, the Septuagint is more accurate because it presents the true history. So, two cheers to the translators of the Septuagint for their fidelity to the text they received. Amen and amen. Back to you. Paragraph four. Uh, Now, let's see. The case of the missing prophecy. There you have it, four. So, the case of missing prophecy. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, read the following prophetic passage, quote, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Mm. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until his the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. End of quote. In bracket, Matthew 2, verses 12 to 15. End of bracket. Mm-hmm. Okay, we understand this history because uh, Joseph and Mary had to take Yahshua to Egypt for his own protection. So it's not, it, it doesn't say he was an Egyptian. <laughs> Out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, back to you. Many, um, uh, 
pro- Protestants believe that this prophecy is found in the Old Testament um, of the book um, uh, of the prophet Hosea, bracket, chapter 11, verses 1. But this cannot be true. Why? If you read the Hosea passage in its entirety, you realize that this particular passage is speaking about God's disobedient son, ah. uh, the nation of Israel. This cannot be said of our Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, there you go. Very good. So, yeah, please continue. I'll, I'll uh, bring that verse up because that's an important <laughs> distinction. That's uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, right? Okay. Yeah. Let me go so, there and please continue while I'm looking for it. There's only one Old Testament passage that clearly fulfills all the qualifications for being the prophecy that the Gospel of St. Matthew is referring to. That is number 24, two, uh, verses 2 to 9 in the Septuagint text. Quote, And Balaam lifted up his eyes and sees Israel encamped by their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Yeah, okay, and so I've got, sorry, it interrupts, but Hosea 11, 1 clearly says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So Israel is, is his son just as much as Yahshua is. And so that comment there is absolutely correct. Thank you. Thank you. So, and he took up his parable and said, Balaam says to the sons of Beor, The man who sees uh, truly says, he who hears the oracle of the mighty one speaks, who saw a vision of God in sleep, his eye were open. How uh, goodly are thy inhabitants, Jacob, and thy tent, uh, tents, Israel, as shady groves, and uh, gardens by a river, and as tents which God uh, pictured, and as cedars by the waters. There shall come a man out of his seed, and he shall rule over many nations, and the kingdom of Gog shall be exalted, and his kingdom shall be increased. God let him out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the glory of a unicorn. He shall consume the nations of his enemies, and he shall drain their marrow, and with his darts he shall shoot through the enemy. He lay down, he rested as a lion, and as a young lion, who has stirred him up, that they bless thee are blessed, and they that curse thee are cursed. End of quote. Okay, it's not about the Jews, folks. (laughs) All right, so that's the Septuagint version. Okay, so I don't know if they do a comparison with the uh, Masoretic. All right, please continue. So, so that yeah, go ahead. Scholar Charles uh, Provan writes, "Quote: Though the sojourn bracket in Egypt and the bracket may be obtained in the Masoretic text, yet it is much easier to derive it from the Greek version. Indeed, the number twenty-four is a, a Messianic prophecy. It is so obvious that it jumps off the pages, as does the Egyptian sojourn in the uh, Messiah." And no right. quote. Very good. And also, quote, notice also that one name, bracket, of our Savior, and bracket, in the New Testament is the Lion from the tribe of Judah, bracket, Revelations 5, verses 5, and the bracket. Though there are messianic prophecies in which it is stated that Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. 
I'm aware of none which refer directly to Christ as a lion, except the Numbers 24 prophecy of Balaam. This is obtainable from the Masoretic text, but is unavoidable in Greek. End okay. quote. So from the Masoretic text, you have to analyze it and dig dig through it to get this fact, but it's it's obvious in the Septuagint. Very good. <laughs> Two and a half shears for the Septuagint text. <laughs> two and a half? <laughs> Maybe he's making fun of that show, Two and a Half Men. <laughs> All yeah. right. And number okay. five for you then, sir. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. And uh, when I'm done here, we're going to take a quick break. Number five, the case of the missing kinsmen. That's in the plural, kinsmen. As C. Provan points out, quote, there are differences between the Septuagint Old Testament and the Old Testament of the rabbinic Jews, the Masoretic text. To make matters worse, many Christians now suppose that since the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible kept by the rabbinic Jews is in fact the original Hebrew. Unquote. No, it's not. In fact, it is not the original Hebrew, and it is not too old either. <laughs> You see, the rabbis had very peculiar orders concerning the copying of the Old Testament. Among their rules is the command that all old used copies of the Old Testament are to be destroyed. Hence, the oldest complete copy of the Old or the Hebrew Old Testament dates to around about 1100 AD. The Greek Old Testament is very much older than that. And what we have, and that's the Masoretic text, and that is the, the perverted version done by the rabbis, the rabbi, rabbinical copyists. Take note, some of the differences that we find between the Septuagint and Masoretic texts are the following. In the Gospel of St. Luke, in the genealogy of Christ, in chapter 3, verse 36 and 37, there are two Canaans mentioned, and they spell them both C-A-I-N-A-N, two Canaans. The Septuagint Greek Old Testament also mentions two Canaans in Genesis 10.24. The Hebrew Masoretic text, however, mentions only one. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the middle of the last century, the Hebrew text of some 2,000 years ago was examined, and that text, like the text of the New Testament and the Septuagint, had two Canaans. What happened? Who deleted one of those Canaans, if, if not a Jew, <laughs> right? C. Proven tells us in the following quote, according to ancient Jewish literature, the second Canaan, or now ancient, now in this case it would be Judahite literature, because there's no such thing as ancient Jew, Jewish literature, because they did not write the Hebrew Bible. They did not, did not write a single verse of the Hebrew. All of the work by Jews is modern Hebrew, which most of which is perverted. The second Canaan was involved in the reintroduction of astrology into the post-flood world. By eliminating the second Canaan from the genealogies, Noah's great-grandson is eliminated as a problem since he was esteemed as a great sinner. But so was Abraham's father. All right? Nahor was a, uh, was a pagan. He was an idolater. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so Yahweh took him out of that situation and put him into, uh, you know, into Canaan land. Yeah, didn't they say that that you have to leave your father because he are full of adultery, full of statues homes? You have to leave that, him. That's right. That's right. That was Chaldea. 
Chaldea was an idolatrous nation, but there were Israelites or pre-Israelites living there. That uh, Yahweh said, you have to get out of this place. There's too much paganism going on here. Okay. So anyway, uh, after that uh, quote, he says, that is how the second Canaan disappeared from the genealogy of the Masoretic text. Does this remind us of the Soviet method of airbrushing the enemies of the people from old photographs? Well said. Apparently, some rabbis who worked on the Masoretic text felt they had even more divine authority than God. Well, isn't that what the Talmud says? That God looks over the shoulder of a rabbi, and if he has a question, he ha- he has to ask the rabbi, right? Uh, yeah, I've heard, but that is, that is bull crap. Sorry. Of course it is. Of course yeah. it is. But it's, it's the Talmud. That's what it says in the Talmud, folks. Then there's Acts 714. There, the God-inspired St. Stephen, the first martyr, filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.54, tells us that all the members of the patriarch Jacob's family were 75 in number. The Septuagint text also says 75, but the Masoretic Hebrew text of Genesis 46.27 says 70. Who is correct? If we check the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find that they confirm what the Septuagint and the New Testament say, 75. Three cheers for the Septuagint text. Okay. And I I was asked this question about a month ago, and I simply speculated, well, the 70 souls were Israelites, but they may have had like five hangers on who accompanied them to, uh, uh, to Egypt. So that would be an explanation for the discrepancy as well. But however, we see here that both the New Testament and the Septuagint both say 75. The Masoretic oh. disagrees, so you know, it's pretty obvious that the Septuagint is correct. Your, your comment, you were getting ready to say something there, Michael. No, no, no. No, it's... Uh... Okay. okay. All right, so uh, we need to take a break here. At least I do, because I'm sitting here in a very cold room with a dinky little heater. I need to get up and walk around and warm up my toes, all right? And so we'll play some music in the meantime. And take a quick break. And, of course, uh, how long, oh, Lord. (laughs) Now, let's do the insane Babylonians. Here we go, folks. And it's about a five-minute song. See you in a bit.
And uh, we're going to continue the story of the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text. Oh, I keep forgetting. I have to. I have to hit stop. It doesn't. Uh, it keeps on playing if I don't hit stop. All right. So Bible errors examined. And uh, hold on one second here. Okay, I just want to make sure we're all ready to go. So let me uh, pick it up here, Michael. The case of the missing feast, number seven. Wow, how can you miss a whole feast? (laughs) Oh, by the way, okay, they have the seven candlestick menorah, which is the proper one. The Jews have even perverted that by creating a nine-stick menorah. So if you see a nine-stick menorah, you know it's Jewish. The case of the missing feast. The uh, All right, yeah, okay, so the Jewish people love the feast of Hanukkah, as they call it. It's actually, I think they call it the Festival of Lights, but really it comes from our book, the uh, Books of Maccabees, which is not Jewish literature, but Judahite literature. And that's when the altar was perverted by Antiochus Epiphanes when he sacrificed the pig on the sacrificial altar. When the Maccabees cast the Greeks out, they rededicated the altar. And so it's re- the true de- name of it is the Feast of Dedication or Rededication. And Yahshua celebrated that feast in the New Testament. So it's not Jewish. It's Judahite. Continuing here with this article, uh, with the text here, it is there, speaking of the Jews, it is their answer to Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and that is correct, because the Jews never used to practice this feast. They resurrected it because the, the children, the Jewish children, say, hey, Mommy, Daddy, why don't we get any presents? But there is a little problem here. The Feast of Hanukkah is nowhere to be found in the present-day Hebrew Scripture. <laughs> That's right, but it is in the Apocrypha, and the, this proves the accuracy of the Apocrypha, the books of First and Second Maccabees, because there it is, and Yahshua celebrated it in the New Testament. Oi, oi, vey. Well, where can we find it? You guessed it. It is based on, well, no, not an oral tradition. It's in, in book. Oh, yeah, he does mention it. An, an oral tradition, there's no such thing as an oral tradition in our religion. It has no validity. If it's not written in the books of Moses and the New Testament, it doesn't exist. It's fake, okay? The oral tradition is Jewish. It's based on a tradition which, in turn, is based on an incident found only in the Greek Septuagint text. No, what? okay, first b- book of Maccabees. 436 to 59. Okay, I don't, uh, but it's also in the, uh, it's also in the King James Version. The, the original King James Version had the Apocrypha in it. Yes, the feast that is one of the most beloved of, for the Jewish people today is based on a text found only in the sacred scriptures of the Orthodox Christians, the new Israel, and we're the true Israel. Happy Hanukkah to all. But again, Hanukkah does not mean Festival of Lights. It is the Feast of Rededication. So the Jews have perverted that as well. Okay, we have one section left here of God's language 
why don't you take? Oh, wait a minute. We'll see how long is this. Oh, that's a fairly long, uh, fairly long section. So we may well. We'll definitely get this in today. So over to you, uh, section eight, God's language, brother Michael. Yes, thank you. So okay. eight, God's language. We have written about the difference between today's Masoretic text and the Old Testament and the ancient Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Actually, since the Septuagint translation was finished about 290 years before Christ and the contemporary Hebrew Masoretic text was only um, completed a millennium after Christ. The Septuagint version is almost 1,300 years old, older than the current Masoretic edition. The Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the middle of the last century sometimes favor the Septuagint text and sometimes the Masoretic text. As far as the Septuagint is concerned, it is important to remember that it was done by scholars of the Jewish faith almost 300 years before Christ. Judah, so, I think. Judah, I just, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. By by the Judahite faith almost 300 years before Christ. So it cannot possibly argue that it has a pro-Christian bias. In the case of the Masoretic text, however, it has done in the centuries after Christ. So there are always suppositions about an anti-Christian bias in the choice of the variant Hebrew text that were picked in order to create the Masoretic edition. These superstitions are easily strong when passage in the Septuagint, which lend themselves readily to a Christian interpretation, are substantially different or even uh, uh, disappear entirely in the Masoretic text. There you go. That's more proof that the rabbis have perverted the, te- the Hebrew text. But the truth be told, and uh, to be fair, there is a passage in the Masoretic text that really has um, really are very beautiful and more eloquent than the Septuagint version and the fact of the matter is that the Septuagint is after all a translation of the Hebrew text as we know every translation from one language is another is in reality an interpretation every language has words whose full range of nuances and implications cannot possibly translate uh, accurately in another language. Yeah, and certainly not, uh, you, for example, if we're translating from German into English, the words uh, in German have nuances that you cannot possibly capture in English without footnotes. <laughs> right? So that an actual translation without, foot lo- f- without footnotes is virtually impossible in any case. Not just translating from the Bible, but any any document, because the words have uh, you know multiple meanings in every language, but not the same multiple meanings in every language. So to really translate accurately, you would have to have multiple footnotes, and very few translations have that. They can't bother with that. So they do the best they can by covering uh, the, the nuances with other words in the object language, and so. But that means, Michael. You have to know both languages very, very well. You have to be proficient in the reading, writing, and speaking of both languages in order to capture all those nuances and the, the idioms and all that sort of stuff, right? So this, this just shows uh, you know, the, the dedication 
of uh, Christian scholars in trying to get it right down through the last 2,000 years. This is hard work, folks, very difficult work. So we, we have to appreciate, give them a nod of our appreciation for the hard work they have done and you know, doing it as well as they have. All right. Okay, back to you, Michael. Yes. Okay. This is especially true when we are talking about God's language. What language does God speak? Well, it would be helpful for us to know, first of all, that God speaks in a very ancient language. This language is known by the name, quote, uncreated divine grace. Quote. Okay, that's the first time I've ever heard of this. Uh, this sounds like an orthodox uh, fairy tale, maybe. <laughs> anyway, orthodox interpretation, put it that way. Please continue. This language does not translate well into our Semitic or Indo-European language, or, for the fact, into any man-made language. Many fine men and women have thrown up their hands in despair trying to translate God's language, bracket, and yet, oddly, children sometimes have no problem at all understanding it and the bracket. Furthermore, nobody can duplicate the sounds of God's language. It seems to have no vowels or consonants that human beings can articulate. Okay, well, I've never heard of this language, uncreated divine grace. It's clearly an orthodox teaching, which you, you, you will not get in the West. All right. Back no, I haven't, I haven't read about anything like this when I read the, read the scriptures either. So this yeah. must be some. Yeah, it's definitely an orthodox uh, teaching. Uh, and we're not orthodox. <laughs> All right, back to you. Uh, in the article, Brack, ra- uh, quote, rationalism and fundamentalism, and no quote, we quoted what some saints of the church had to say about uh, conveying God's language into ours. In this work, the um, Hexameron, St. Basil the Great, says the following, quote, It must be well understood that when we speak of the voice of the word, of the command of God, this divine language does not mean to us a sound which escape from the origins of speech, a collusion of air struck by the tongue. It is a simple sign of the will of God, and if we give it the form of an, an, of an order, it is only the better to impress the souls whom we instruct. And no quote. Okay, uh, so this is more like uh, revelation or intuition that the Orthodox Church teaches this. Okay, it's kind of like, uh, it sounds to me like when uh, Judeo-Christians say, God spoke to me and told me such and such. Okay, well, to which I say, if it isn't true, then God didn't speak it to you. Prove to me that you're right. Okay, then maybe I'll then maybe I'll concede that you were inspired to say this. All right, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common thing in Judeo Christianity. The Lord told me, or the Holy Spirit told me to say this and that, and typically the, the what they say is is nonsense. Right, so you can't trust it. All right, back to you. And this quote was from this book again, um, Hexa yeah. Emeron, the second two verses seven in a bracket. St. George of Nyssa, on his part, has this to say, quote, Human speech finds it impossible to express that reality which uh, transcends all thought and all concepts, and who ab- ob- 
stinlessly tries to express it in words unconsciously offends God. And quote, commentary on Ecclesiastics, homily 7. In okay, the yeah, yeah, these are Orthodox saints that you won't find in the Catholic Church. No. And again, he writes, quote, lifted out of himself by the Spirit, bracket, the prophet David, and bracket, glimpsed in the blessed um, ecstasy, God's infinity and incomprehensible beauty. He saw as much as mere mortal can see, leaving the covering of the flesh, and by thought alone entering into divine vision of that immaterial and spiritual realm. And though yearning to say something which would do justice to his vision, he can only cry out, bracket, in words that all can echo after him, and bracket, I said in mine ecstasy, every man is a liar, bracket, <laughs> Psalms 115, verses 2, and bracket. And this I take to mean that anyone who attempts to portray that ineffable light in language is truly a liar, not because of any um, abhorrence of the truth, but merely because of the inf- um, firmity of his explanation, and unquote. Okay. Bracket from the homily on virginity and the bracket. So, what you see when you are in trance or in, uh, in inspiration, you know, divine inspiration, uh, is impossible to put into words, is basically what he's saying. Okay, it's impossible to put it into words. And, you know, you can get close, but, uh, you know, like people who are on LSD and they see visions of this and that, you know, materializing out of the ether and then disappearing back into the ether. Uh, you, you can describe the visions, but it's, it, it's hard to describe the reality you're in at the present time, you know, because it's created by LSD, right? So when people go into trance, and many, many saints of both the Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant tradition have been taken there and have been have tried to put into words what they experience there, and they can't. In fact, there's there's an old Buddha saying, though he who says doesn't know, and who knows won't say. That's basically saying you can't put it into words. The uh, the uh, experiences they have are so far beyond words that you can't be put into words. Okay, that's the essence of what's going on here. Okay, back to you. Yes, thank you. So, what does all this have to do with the Septuagint and the Masoretic text? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Simple this. A feeble attempts to translate God's language into our man-made language. Birch version for short. Each one has its own strong points and its weak points, but neither one can adequately convey the revelation of God's ineffable grace into our earth-bound languages. As for the difference between the Greek and Hebrew text, except for the fact that there was some open tampering with the Old Testament text in the Masoretic bracket. Amen. Amen. No doubt about that. Okay. For more information on this, go to, yes, an email here, cnmail at fidnet.com and bracket. Both versions with certain qualifications might often simply represent different textual transitions of the Hebrew Old Testament. 
Right. Yeah. No, the copy is the, you know, how many times has the Old Testament been copied and recopied and recopied? You know, there's going to be mistakes. Okay. The, and the, the King James, by the way, the, the translators never, never espouse the idea that their translation is inerrant. That's a later tradition that you know, primarily stated by uh, Protestant ministers, you know, and that is a, a ridiculous claim. The, since, the, since the authors themselves don't claim inerrancy, how can the readers claim that the authors were inerrant? It's absurd. It's totally absurd, Michael. Back to you. Yeah. Having in mind what the saints of the church have said about the limitations of our human language in dealing with the divine revelation, bracket, see above, and bracket, it is not surprising that Orthodox Christians do not get bent out of shape as Roman Catholic or Protestant textual criticism seems to do about textual differences and variations in the Holy Scriptures. However, the reason why Orthodox Christians prefer the Setuidians is simply because it represents an ancient, authentic, and unbiased text of the Old Testament, translated and embraced by the Judite people themselves for almost 400 years. Since we hold ourselves to be the new Israel, we feel pretty strongly about upholding this tradition of the God of our fathers. Amen. So be it. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, well, what did Yeshua say in the New Testament? Uh, stop talking because you might make a mistake, right? So you might say too much or too little, so just say yay or nay. You know, if you, if you have a disagreement with your brother, just say yay or nay. I agree with you or no, I don't agree with you. you know, and, uh, but don't, don't waste our time with your speculations, okay? Too much talk and not enough understanding all right please continue well article is finished oh it is oh okay amen so be it all right so job well done <laughs> job well done all right so uh and now i have to find did i send you the link to the uh other article because it's Oh, okay, yeah, I think I have it here. Cerebralfaith.net. I think I did put it in the chat room, but that was ages ago. That's an, almost an hour and a half ago, so I'm going to copy it. And I'll put it in the chat room, so if you just look for it in the chat room, Michael, uh, you'll have yep. it as well. Okay, uh, so I had a feeling we would run out of text on this article. So give me a second, folks. I'm try I'm trying to drag and drop. It doesn't always want to drag and drop. There we go. Cerebralfaith.net, Genesis six, descendants of Cain, Neanderthals, ancient kings or angel human hybrids. Okay. So I think uh I think we've said enough about the differences between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. There's always more research you can do on your own, folks. But this is you know, this is just scratching the surface because the, but the bottom line is this, that the Masoretic text was composed by Jews, by Pharisaic Jews, Jews who are the descendants, in many cases, literal descendants of the Edomite Jews of the New Testament Pharisees, okay? 
You do not want to follow their teachings. You do not want to follow their teachings. So amen to that, all right? That's why the Septuagint is always, let's put it this way. Since the King James Version is the most uh, available of all versions, you can read that with a concordance and several concordances, as uh, I said in the chat room earlier, that I prefer the Brown Driver Briggs uh, Gesenius concordance because that is the most complete, whereas many times the Strong's concordance is very incomplete, and it will not give you the correct interpretation of where. For example, uh, Nakash, uh, the uh, Strong's Concordance just has a very simplistic definition of, of Nakash, whereas the uh, Brown Driver Briggs Eusenius will give you much more information about the meaning and origin of that word, okay? So, yeah, Jewish fables, didn't Paul say? Uh, don't believe in Jewish fables, right? That's what the Masoretic text is, folks. It's a Jewish fable. But they didn't corrupt all of it. That's why you have to have a concordance and a double check against, as we were doing here today, Michael, double checking it against the Septuagint and against the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in my research, I found that the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint generally agree better with each other than either of them do with the Masoretic text. And there's a good reason for that. And that is the fact that the Masoretic text was doctored by Pharisees. It is the Pharisaic version of the Hebrew Scriptures, folks. That's what it is. Okay? All right, back to you, Michael. And let's get into this. The cerebral faith, well, it is. Christianity is actually a logical historical religion, not Judaism. But true Christianity is, and it's a scientific religion. If you if you dig closely enough, it's there's no contradiction to known science within the Bible. It is really a logical faith, as the article tends to maintain. So, fallen angels are are fallen angels real, or are they fiction? Let me let me begin it here. Let's see, because uh, we're at ten twenty four. And let's let me just double check to see if there's anybody in uh, our, our chat area who wants to join us. No. Okay. All right. All right. So, in defense of the chosen, <laughs> it's oh, that's a different post. Sorry. So, are they defending Jews or true Israelites? <laughs> okay. Genesis six: the Nephilim, descendants of Cain, Neanderthals, ancient kings. Or angel-human hybrid. So what's your opinion on this, Michael? The Nephilims. They are, I don't know, what would call them uh, descendants of Cain? Mm, I don't know. Well, More angel-human. Yeah. Angel-human hybrid sounds like go. the most uh, yeah. closest one for me. Right, yeah, because the Nephilim are the offspring of the Ben Elohim, which is the sons of God, which come from the spirit world. And they made it, they somehow materialized into human form and raped the daughters of Adam. Okay? That's, so that would be angel human hybrids. Okay? By Evan Minton, and that is exactly the position he takes as to be the most logical. In this part five of a series of papers in which I exegete and commentate on the uh, comment <laughs> on the contents of what scholars call the primeval history period of the Bible, that is Genesis 1 through 11. 
because at least some of these papers are rather lengthy. I have included uh, Dropbox links to all of them so that visitors to this site can download them as PDFs and read them on their devices at their own leisure. To download the PDF for this paper, go here. Link, I won't, it's a very long link. Abstract. In this paper, I will argue that the most exegetically tenable interpretation of who the Nephilim were is that they were the giant hybrid, uh, hybrid offspring of the fallen angelic beings known as the Watchers. In the Bible, they're known as the Ben Elohim, meaning sons of God, with, with human w- women. The Watchers descended onto Mount Hermon, took on corporeal form, and mated with Adamic women, not human women, the sons of, the, sorry, the daughters of Adam, who show blood in the face, in an attempt to mess up the bloodline of the seed of Eve. All right, that's great. That's two seed line right there, folks. I like it so far. Who would crush the head of Nachash mentioned in Genesis 3.1. I will first lay out the biblical evidence for the view and then examine the non-supernaturalistic approaches, the Sethite view, the ancient king's view, the, the Andersal view. By the way, Michael, there's a Jewish author who claims that Jews are descended from Neanderthals, <laughs> not from the Adamic bloodline. That's probably accurate. Oh, that's accurate. They're not yes. from Adamite. That's right. They're Neanderthals. So Cain was probably the first, or had Neanderthal blood in one way or another. Okay. So, uh, where did I leave off here? Okay. And the, the, the view, and the, huh. Where's, oh, okay. Well, first lay out the biblical evidence for the view and then examine the non-supernaturalistic approaches, which he just uh, uh, iterated, that Christians have adopted and show why they do not account for all of the evidence. Some of these proposals can account for some of the data, but not all of the data. Only the quasi-divine being theory can account for all of the facts, that is, the Ben Elohim, and I agree with that, okay? Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the... Now, wait a minute. What's wrong with the word man? The word man in the, in your King James Version is probably... It might be the same in the Septuagint, too. But it should say Adamite. When yeah, Adamites... Right, okay? When Adamites began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God, now this is a reference to the Ben Elohim in the spirit world, that the daughters of men were attractive. They saw them and said, whoa, look at that. They're hot. And they took as their wives, which is a euphemistic, they raped these Adamite women that they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in Adam forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, have, having been produced by the Ben Elohim and the daughters of Adam. And also afterward, after the flood. So they survived the flood. That's what this verse is telling us. When the sons of God, that is the Ben Elohim, came into the daughters of man, of Adam, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, 
the men of renown. This is the ESV version. Now, what's that say? Well, they were here before. They're in Indian, the Naga, the Naga of Indian lore, you know, uh, Sanskrit lore, the legends of various civilizations who survived the flood. They all talk of giants. And most of the descriptions of these giants is that they are, um, they have Caucasian or Aryan features, which is what the Ben Elohim had, okay? The, the, uh, the sons of God, okay? They looked like white people. Nordic, they were Nordic in appearance, and virtually every legend about giants says that they had a Nordic appearance, often with red hair, blonde hair, blue eyes, brown eyes, that sort of thing, okay? So these Ben Elohim were their purpose, in my opinion, Michael, was that they were the um, blueprint of the Adamic race. That's what they were. They were the blueprint. But they only existed in the spirit world. They didn't ex exist in the flesh world. Somehow, they were able to in, in, incorporate, uh, to, to come into physical existence, not by Yahweh's permission, but by some other means. Okay? They figured out how to do it, and they became corporeal beings, as the author here says. Okay? They were the mighty men of old of renown. So, they were even older. They're, they're, these mighty men were actually older than Genesis 6 is what I'm reading here. Okay, so let's continue. And the question, this Eli. Tech, yeah, um, yeah, go for, ahead. For them that then believe that the flood was on the on a world stage, how could the Nephilim survive, survive, survive afterwards? Were they right. tra tramping water for, yeah, for three right. months or what? <laughs> No, they had inner tubes, <laughs> right? No, the, the flood was not global. Uh, it wasn't, but this just I'm just asking question. If you read that verse, how right. can you believe it's global when you read that and afterward? Right. I, yeah. how, did they, yeah. how did they survive? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's poor scholarship. This is very poor scholarship because, the word, you know, for example, the same word, uh, the earth, uh, is used in Genesis chapter 6. It's the same word used in, when... Cain was cast out of the earth. He wasn't cast off the planet. <laughs> he just moved from one territory to another. Yeah. That's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6. You, you cannot assume that it means globe. It only means territory. I mean, that's, uh, there's numerous papers have been done on this. Uh, and, of course, it's, uh, the people take both sides. But the argument that it was global just, fall, just fails. Because uh, all cultures survived the flood. Um, the uh, Amerindians survived the flood. The South Americans survived the flood. The Chinese survived the flood. Egypt even barely had a flood. Okay? There was hardly a flood there at all in Egypt. Yet these all these civilizations popped up within a matter of 100 years. They were flourishing already. If the, every single human being on the earth died, as the, the global flood proponents claim, how did the Earth's population recover so fast? And how did the variety of cultures just have the same variety as it had before the flood? That makes no sense. Simply no. makes no sense. Okay. Right. Okay. So where were we? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll finish uh, the section under 6, 4, 1 through 4. This text has fascinated Bible students for centuries. Who and what are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of God? They're different. The Nephilim are the, the offspring of the two, of, of the sons of God and the Adamite women. 
who are the sons of God who go into the daughter's men in order to produce the Nephilim? And how is this in any way related to the great deluge of the rest of the passage and subsequent chapters narrate? Okay, well, it was not global. We can we can say that much. There are five different interpretations of the Nephilim that scholars opt for. One, the Sethite interpretation, which means that they believe that the sons of God were the Sethites. Okay, well, only Adam and Eve were had the breath had the breath of Yahweh, the Holy Spirit breathed into them by Yahweh in Genesis two seven, but they lost it when they interbred with the the non Adamic people that were created, in, you know, in Genesis chapter one. Okay, those those people were all already all over the place, so uh, the non seedline interpretation fails to take that into account when they falsely state that there were only three people on the earth, namely Adam, Eve, and Nakash in Genesis chapter 3. No, there were, the Adamic race was already given dominion in chapter 1, and they were being fruitful and multiplying. What happened to them? <laughs> right? They were everywhere. All right? They were already all over. We can't give a, put a number on it, but I would say in the thousands, certainly in the thousands, okay? So, so one is the Sethite interpretation that the, the Ben Elohim are the Sethites. Two, the Neanderthal interpretation. Where did they come from? Three, the ancient king's interpretation. And four, the angelic hybrid interpretation. That's the, that's the interpretation most of us two C-liners accept. In this paper, I will show how that last alternative is the most likely to be true. It explains all of the data, whereas the others fall short. Okay, let's dig into it, Michael. Over to you. So, the angelic hybrid view. This is the view I think is true. This view says that the Nephilim, as a result of illicit unions between angelic or divine beings, who came to Earth, took on a corporal form and mated with human women. Give the women. Yeah. Yeah. Given that the um, psychology of these beings were similar, yet different uh, from humans, there are think giants, uh, freaks of nature, similar to how uh, you get a mule if you breed a horse with a donkey and a donkey. Yeah. Uh, I will lay out the evidence supporting this view. And then, when I'm done, I'll examine alternative interpretations of the Nephilim to show how they fall short of explaining all of the evidence put forth in this subsection. Okay, very good. Mm-hmm. Evidence one. The f- um, phrase, quote, son of God, and quote, are most often applied to divine beings. The phrase, quote, son of God, and quote, is in the Hebrew text is Benaha Elohim. This phrase is used five times in the Old Testament bracket six if you include the correct translation of Deuteronomy thirty two verses eight and a bracket. One, for example, in Job one verse six we read quote, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along among them, and they'll quote and in Job 2, verses 1, quote, Again, there was a day where the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among 
them to present himself before the Lord. End of quote. In Job 38, 4 verses, uh, 38 verses 47, we read, quote, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretches uh, the line upon it? On what uh, were its uh, bases sunk? Or who led its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And those quote. So the and morning that's... stars is in plural there. Okay. Uh, that's not quite the same definition for Halal which is translated as Lucifer, which means, uh, what does it mean? I forgot. <laughs> it doesn't mean morning star. Oh, oh, it says son of the morning. So uh, morning star is, is accurate, son of the morning. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so from what you just read, are these angelic heavenly beings or are they earthly beings? What I read now I think is angelic. Yeah, I agree. It's That's angelic. my yeah. Yeah. Please continue. Uh, almost every interpreter agree that the sons of God in these Job passages are angels or divine beings, members of Yahweh's divine council. Woohoo! The correct name too. Yeah. Now it's interesting because now it says, and Satan also came. Yeah, he among was there them. too. So it's making a distinction here between the Ben Elohim who are on Yahweh's side, still taking his orders, but Satan had already fallen or rebelled, put it that way. Satan had already belled, rebelled. Now, whether he had fallen all the way down to earth, yet, in this passage, is another question. But when Yahweh asked him, what are you doing here, Satan? <laughs> he said, well, I'm going down to the earth to stir up trouble, right? Okay, so maybe this is before he fell. Could be after he fell to the earth, right? But certainly had rebelled by this time, I would think. All right, please continue. And the interesting part with Job is that is that Satan asked Yahweh for permission to to be after someone, to trying to, for right. example, Job. He got permission from Yahweh to do it, to test him, right. but right. not hurt him. But he did not ask permission from Yahweh to deceive and impregnate Eve. No, he didn't. He did not ask the, permission for that. No. Big was difference. that? Yeah, that's uh -huh. difference. Yeah. So okay. Maybe that's the rebellion. Maybe right. that, that's after that, the rebellion. That was also part of the rebellion, but that was in Genesis 3, not Genesis 6. Now, of course, impregnating, incorporating into earthly form and raping Adamic women, they did not ask permission for that either. <laughs> okay. All right. Back to you. Yes, so okay. they are not mere humans. They are the heavenly host. Okay. This is especially obvious in the case of Job 38. Humans weren't uh, around when God laid the foundations of the earth. Racket. They didn't come uh, to be until day six, when God's act of creating was almost over. And no bracket. Good Two. Point. And plenty of ancient Near Eastern evidence indicate that stars were considered gods by most of the ancient world. Three, as Michael S. Uh, Heise wrote, quote, Austral religion and solar mythology were common in the ancient world. The notion 
that stars were animate divine beings was part of Israelite thinking. The stars had name, bracket, Psalms 147, verses 4, and the bracket, were created by God, bracket, Genesis 1, verses 16, and the bracket, were thought of as a divine army, bracket, Judges 5, verses 20, Isaiah 40, verses 25 to 26, Dan 8, verses 10, Revelation 12, verses 1 to 9, and the bracket. Okay, well, this, this idea, idea, yeah, so, excuse me, this idea may be a holdover from ancient times, but uh, it's today it's called animism, where uh, you believe that every star, every planet, uh, you know, every every tree, or trees as spe- particular species have an angelic being uh, monitoring them or giving them life. Okay, that's animism. And uh, I, don't, I don't think the Bible teaches that. Okay, it's not, it's not saying that it can't happen. Maybe it did happen in the ancient world. Maybe that's how these species came into being, right? But you cannot uh, equate the species with the angel. I think the angels there were there to create these various species, and then they went back into the heavenly realm. That's my that's my view. Could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that is correct view. Back to you. The idea persisted well into the New Testament era. Quote, For, therefore, that the morning stars and sons of God are used as interchangeable terms in Job 38 is very likely. Okay. The sons of God who watched God laid the foundations of the earth were also the morning stars who sought in the light. These are angelic or divine beings. Now, it's interesting that Lucifer means son of the morning. But he's the one who rebelled and subsequently fell. Back to you. Yes. So, Psalms 82, verses 1 to 8. Uh, one says, quote, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show uh, partially, uh, partiality to the wicked? Okay. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, quote, You are God's sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, shall die. And fall like the prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you okay, shall inherit the all the nations. And no quote. Oh, okay, who's the prince? Who's the prince of these Ben Elohim? The prince of this Ben Elohim. Yeah, these are the fallen. Uh, the prince yeah. could that be? Well, it's Satan slash Lucifer. Yeah, we're all the Ben. Yeah, or all of them could all of them be regarded as evil spirits? Those Ben, those, uh, uh, those, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ben Hello simply means sons of God. Okay, but uh, there's evil ones and there's good ones. Those who remain faithful to Yahweh and those who rebelled against Him. So, the yeah, Ben the f- Elohim in Genesis chapter six are the wicked ones. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, but okay. then the one that fell are probably the one that was in the rebellion. They are the Ben. They are the, well, the bad guys in this story. Right, that's right. 
the the evil Ben Elohim. Okay. Yeah, yeah, of and, course. Yeah. And, and and of course they have a leader, <laughs> right? Their leader has various names like Samael, Satan, Lucifer. There's all kinds of names for him in various uh, Israelite literature, but they all point to the one who led the rebellion, who was Lucifer. Yeah, that was Lucifer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No doubt about it. Uh, the idea persisted well into the New Testament era. Um, no, I read that one. Sorry. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, Psalms 82 verses 1 to 8. One says, quote, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show I read that one too. I, yeah, I you read that. Yeah, it, it went down to, for you shall inherit all the nations. Ah, uh, sorry. Arise, O L, judge the earth. This is a reference to Yahweh. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Okay? So yeah. you are the God. Well, see, no, okay. So what this is saying here, ye are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit. So here, Yahweh will inherit all the nations, not these princes. All right, back to you. No, they will. They will probably also regret that they rebelled in the beginning. Yeah, they will inherit the Israeli state. <laughs> all right, okay, which is going to burn, folks. Uh, of this passage, Brian uh, Godava writes in his book, When Giants Were Upon the Earth, that quote. So from this text, we see that God has a divine council that stands around him, and it consists of gods who are judging rulers over the nations and are also called sons of the Most High, bracket, synonymous with sons of God, and the bracket, because they have not ruled justly. God will bring them low in judgment and take the nations away from them. Sounds familiar? It is the same exact story as Deuteronomy 32, and verses 8 to 9, and Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 22. Uh, Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 22. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together in prisons in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Okay, so they're hanging around. <laughs> it's like a, a guy on death row, right? Hanging around, waiting for their punishment. They still exist. Yeah, the Nephilim, they still exist. The spirits still exist, even if they're dead. So they still exist in in this world. Amen. And uh, I think, uh, uh, I haven't looked at the verse, but uh, one of these words is shades, which means that they are shady creatures. They're they're like, they're spirit, like a mist. They don't exist uh, in physical form, but they exist like a mist. Okay, back to you. Uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls written in the first century BC reinforces this ancient Judahite interpretation of Psalms That's 82. Correct. Thank you. <laughs> as punishment focused on the divine council of gods with Satan as their chief, alluded judicial authority over the nations. The idea that the Bible should uh, talk about existent gods other than Yahweh is certainly uncomfortable for absolute uh, monotheists. But uh, our received definitions of monotheism 
are more often than none determined by our cultural traditions, many of which originate in theological con um, controversies uh, of other eras and create the baggage of non-biblical agendas. And quote. Right. Yeah, and and the Jews insist there's only one God. They rarely use His name, which is Yahweh. They they say Hashem, meaning the name. But uh, the the fact is, you, know, you read uh, Genesis uh, chapter two, one through four. It clearly says that the I think he quoted earlier that there are gods many, and Paul even says there are gods many. So uh, the the Bible, it's not really monotheism; it's henotheism. Namely, that Yahweh is the supreme God of all these other gods, and these other gods ex still exist in the, hell, the heavenly realm, and that's where they're supposed to stay, and we will become like them, but we will be in the middle between heaven and earth as judge of the earth. Yeah, we will judge angels, Paul says. Can't wait for that day. <laughs> all right, back to you. Um, Gudava goes on to say that, quote, in light of this theological fear, some try to reinterpret this reference of gods or sons of God in Psalms 82 as a poetic expression of human judges or rulers on earth metaphorically taking the place of God. The ultimate judge by determining justice in this likeness and image, but there are three three big reasons why this cannot be so. First, the terminology in the passage contradicts the notion of human judges and falls to connect um, that term, bracket, quote, sons of God, and quote, and bracket, to human beings anywhere else in the uh, Bible. Second, the Bible elsewhere implicitly reveals a divine counsel or assembly of supernatural sons of God that are judged over the geographical uh, allotments yeah. of nations that is more consistent with the passages. Third, a heavenly divine council of supernatural sons of God is more consistent with the ancient Near Eastern, bracket, A and E, and a bracket, where Jew of the biblical times that Israel shared with her neighbors. And the quote, yeah, okay, so does the spiritual world exist or does it not? No, of course it exists. <laughs> of course it exists, yeah. It's the source of the material world, and we just don't know much about it, but to the extent that the Bible does talk about it, it tells us it's real and it's full of angelic beings. Still, heaven did not empty itself out and cast itself onto the earth into physical form. No, heaven is the source of the physical world. <laughs> And even quantum mechanics has agreed that they cannot figure out where all this stuff comes from. All right, so they invent multiple universes. No, it comes from the, the universe of the immaterial universe that Yahweh lives in. Okay, back to you. These, quote, gods, and unquote, are understood in the Bible uh, to not be on the same level as Yahweh. As Michael Heiser says, Michael Hazers writes, quote, I know how difficult it was for me to understand that some cherished notions about the word God were actually misconceptions. One was an idea that dealt with in the last chapter, 
that the false gods of the Bible were only idols. Another notion that didn't conform to the reality of the text was that the word God is only a name, not just an quote, ordinary and no quote, noun, because I thought God was exclusively the name of a personal being and an unique being at that. I tended to assign the attributes of that being. Yahweh of Israel to the three letters God. When I came to realize that there were other gods in a heavenly council. There you go. It seemed, bracket, and that is an important word, and a bracket, as though Yahweh was just one amongst equal. That no. bothered me. Yeah, no way. <laughs> He's a supreme God, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, plus he, he didn't even talk about the word Elohim is plural. Yeah, this is more. But, but it's translated as singular, God. No, it's plural. It's talking about the heavenly council that are under Yahweh. Okay? Yes. Back to you. Okay, Yahweh's, we're running out of time. We'll just uh, end it on this uh, paragraph, okay? Yeah. Yahweh is, is inherently distinct and superior to all other gods. Amen. Yahweh is an Elohim, bracket, a god, and no bracket. But no other Elohim, bracket, gods, and no bracket, are Yahweh. I'm not assu assuming that the last chapter answered all your questions about the divine council, though I'm betting that many of you are like I was after first discovering what the inspired text really says, what the ancient worldview of Israel really assumed. You still may be struck on the idea that there can only be one Elohim, since Yahweh is called Elohim in so many places in the Bible. And if that is not true, you might be asking, then what is an Elohim? Right. So is there only one divine being in the heavenly realm, or are there millions? <laughs> right? It's certainly not only one, because who is the heavenly council? Right? Well, Yahweh is the highest of them, and then you have that's all those right. other those other other beings that is uh, yeah. below, and that's, that's uh, yeah. where we come from. But most of Christianity, and I think this is what Michael Heiser is trying to say, most of his uh, Christianity assumes that there is only one divine being, and his name is God, instead of Yahweh. No, the word Elohim means many gods. It doesn't mean a single god. That's what we just developed this false tradition about these words, okay? Elohim is plural meaning many gods. Yahweh is the sole divine leader, ruler over all of these gods, whether they be heavenly or earthly, it doesn't matter, okay? All right, folks, we're running out of time. I, just, I forgot because I've been freezing here and uh, not paying attention. I just want to remind you that Money Tree Publishing has all kinds of great books for uh, our availability about uh, Adolf Hitler Henry Ford, it's got my book, The Great Impersonation, all kinds of great books exposing the Jews for the evil beings that they really are, the descendants of the fallen angels, etc. So avail yourself of this uh, material when you get a chance. And so with the few minutes I have left, because we're anticipating the music very shortly, yeah, I, I would say I agree with Michael Heiser on this point that this is what the Bible is trying to present. 
that there is a heavenly realm from which these, these sons of God left their first estate, according to the New Testament, and fell down to the earth and cohabited with Adamic women. How else could that be interpreted? What was their first estate, if not the heavenly, heavenly realm? Okay. All right, Michael, thanks for joining me today. Thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh, Beth. We're going to win this, although it's going to get more and more brutal as we continue to the very end, to the bitter end. Thanks for listening. <laughs>